in a study that I've entitled A Trial by the Fire. Now we're going to begin to get into the trials of Jesus. There are going to be six of them. And I would remind you that realistically there's actually seven trials of Jesus. And there's actually one of those is ongoing throughout the church age. And it's when every single person in the world must try the evidence and determine for themselves whether Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so there will be six. Three by the Jewish religious leadership, specifically Annas, Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin. And then three more trials, two before Pilate and one before Herod. And so we have this amazing scene that's going to unfold before us. And in it is this picture of Peter, a picture that I hope this morning brings you grace for your failures, grace for your weaknesses, grace for my weaknesses, the grace of God that comes to us for in Our weaknesses, he is strong. Where we don't do the right thing, where we, like Peter, are prone at times to even go so far as to to deny that we ever knew him. Now, it's been a while, but I can remember as a young Christian denying the fact that I was actually a Christian. I can remember getting asked, you know, why do you go to church? Oh, my parents make me go. Anybody ever use that one? Yeah, I've denied the Lord. Not because I love the Lord that I went to church, but my parents made me go. Don't be too hard on Peter. Because when you look in the mirror, you probably look a lot like him. I know I do. I want to draw your attention to one verse before we begin this morning because I think it is so important and so beautiful a picture of this time that Peter is now going to first deny the Lord three times. And it's a passage familiar to some of you. It's found in the Psalms. It's actually the very first Psalm and the very first verse, if you'd like to turn there. You can underline it, you can mark it, you can circle a couple of words. And it says, blessed or blessed is the man who walks not. In other words, the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Notice there's three very specific actions that lead towards blessedness. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Notice the second one. Nor stands in the path of sinners. And the picture there is that you're not associated You don't stand with those who are doing the wrong thing. 
You don't walk with the ungodly. You sure don't stand with them. And then finally, notice the third part. Nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Blessed is a man who walks not after the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Those three things, walking, standing, and sitting with the wrong people. Would you pray with me? Lord, we pray this morning that your grace would just leap out of our Bibles and into our minds and our hearts. Lord, we thank you for the times in life where we have stood with the wrong people. We've walked with the wrong people. We've sat down and made nice with the wrong people. And you still forgive us, and you restore us, and you renew us, and you refresh us, and you remake us. And Lord, you're even so gracious as to bless us in that repentance. God, help us like Peter to sense your grace this morning. We give you this time. God, please speak to us. We need you to do that. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, I want to remind you that the Gospels record all of these things simultaneously. This is another event that's recorded in all four Gospels. And so as you look at this particular event, it is also important that we highlight some of the slight differences. Again, these are reasons for us to believe that the Bible was not altered in any way, shape, or form. For if you ask four people seeing the same events, to give their account of those same events. They see those events through their own particular life experience, their own understanding, their own knowledge. Uh, it is a sign when you, when you gather together a bunch of kids and they've just done something wrong or maybe some criminals, so those of you that are in law enforcement, there's a group of people who are arrested for a specific thing and you get them all separately uh, in different places at different times and you ask them, they're going to recall those events differently. They'll, they'll have the same basic story. That is true here in the gospel accounts of the arrest and the trials. And so we find that to be the case. And so these events will begin at about 2 o'clock in the morning. They're going to take place until about 7.30 in the morning. So they're all on the day of Jesus' death. The day has actually dawned. And these trials will take place, all of them illegally. And it's important to, to grasp that thought. Because Jesus is going to be accused of blasphemy. And in so, there's a pre-trial hearing that's going to happen first before a guy who's not actually even the high priest makes it illegal. The charges are trumped up. He's treated violently. Uh, that is illegal under Jewish law. You cannot beat someone into submission under Jewish law. The charges had to be brought. And then the following day... You could, if it was a capital crime, in other words, this is 2 o'clock in the morning, so they would have had to wait until the next day 
during daylight hours, number one, you couldn't try them at night. Number two, you couldn't pronounce sentence at night. Number three, you had to pronounce sentence the next day, and you had to bring impartial witnesses. So this whole thing is completely illegal. Jesus is going to stand now before the first of these trials. But before we get there, verse 54, and we see Peter's absolute terror. He's going to be tried himself. You and I are just like Peter in that regard. You're going to be tried. You're going to be tested. Your faith is going to be assaulted in this world. You are going to have to, as Joshua reminded us as we finished that wonderful book in chapter 24, you are going to have to choose this day whom you will serve. No Christian gets to escape that. No real Christian gets to escape that aspect of your walk with the Lord. It's a part of all of our walks. People will ask you, why do you go to church? Your children will ask you, well, why do you say this? The Bible says so, but you do this. Your faith will be tested. Your confession will also be tested. You see, it's real easy here in church to say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. It is, isn't it? You know why? Because most everybody in here believes in Jesus. You're all in agreement. But what happens when you're at work? And you're with those folks that don't know the Lord Jesus yet. And they start talking to you. Well, you know, uh, they just proved last week that evolution is true. You know, after all, goo to you. That's how we got here. Well, yeah, my pastor thinks that, you know, that God created him. You see, that's where the rubber hits the road, isn't it? That's where your trial will be. You're not going to get tried here in church. You may get loved on. You'll be agreed with. But when you get out with the sinners, when you get out with the scornful, when you get out there where there are people who don't love the Lord, that's where your trial will begin. Having arrested him, that him being Jesus, verse 54 says, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house, but Peter followed at a distance. Now remember, Jesus told them, I want you to go back to our homeland. Head back north to Galilee. Go wait for me. He's going to make that clear to them. And Peter, not listening to the Lord, step number one, be careful and always listen to the Lord. Because if you don't, you're going to bring all kinds of terrible things into your life. Peter wasn't that far away, but he was far enough away from the Lord. The palace of the high priest stood slightly on the mountain slope. You need to understand the compact nature of these events. 
they're, they're not moving from place to place. They're not going all over the, you know, the entire city. They're not walking five or six miles. Each one of these places is within easy walking distance, a quarter mile to a half mile from one place to the other. They're literally 10, 15 minute walks. To go from the Garden of Gethsemane at the base of the Mount of Olives, across the Brook Kidron, along the city wall, and down to the top of the city of Zion, David's city, to where the Tyropian Palace is, the palace of the high priest, would have taken you maybe 10 or 15 minutes at most. Two o'clock in the morning. They walked to the high priest's house. Now notice it says he's the high priest. There's a reason that he's still labeled the high priest, because he's actually the president of the Sanhedrin. The high priest, the real high priest, is actually Caiaphas, who happens to be the son-in-law of Annas. Mary's Annas's daughter. And so keeping the political power intact, the power structure of this one family, you have as the president of the Sanhedrin, Annas himself, his son-in-law is now the high priest, the actual high priest, who reigns in the temple. And so both of them are actually called the high priest. The one serves in the temple, one serves in the Sanhedrin. They're in cahoots. There's big money at stake here. Annas is a wealthy guy. Caiaphas is a wealthy guy. They are making bank. They've got everybody's dollars coming their way. Their shekels are flowing into the family kitty because they control all of the business in the temple. So if you need to bring your foreign currency from the region across the Jordan River and it needs to be cashed in for the local denarii, that goes through the temple priests. If you have to come and buy a sacrifice in the temple grounds, as you get to the court of the Gentiles and you're not a Jew and you want to offer a sacrifice, part of that money's going to go to Annas. Part of it's going to go to Caiaphas. These guys have a motivation behind what they're doing, and it has nothing to do with God. It has everything to do with money. One of the great problems in the church today is there are a lot of churches that that's what church is about. Churches need money, that's for sure. We need to pay our mortgage and pay our electric bill and pay our salaries and take care of insurance and all those kind of things. But when the church becomes concerned about this issue, money, more than they are concerned about the Lord Jesus, there is a problem. These men both had liberal religious views. And Peter stands afar off. That's always a very, very dangerous place to be when you're standing afar off from Jesus. A very dangerous place to be. You will do all kinds of things that you promised you'd never do when you're standing afar off from Jesus. 
You see Peter's tagging along. He's keeping a safe distance. He, he's away from the soldiers. He's not actually in the fight. He's standing afar off, and we're going to see the result that that will bring. He will do exactly what Psalm 1 says you shouldn't do if you want to be blessed. He's torn between curiosity and cowardice, between fear and love, between depression and devotion, between desire and doubt. He is torn between those emotions because he's standing afar off from Jesus. He actually doesn't want to be associated with Jesus. He could have walked right over and stood right next to Jesus and said, where you go, I'll go. He could have made himself known to the whole world. That's my Lord. But he didn't do that, did he? Much like you and I at times, he was conflicted. And so before Jesus gets put on trial, Peter gets put on trial. Three times. Same number of times that Jesus is going to be tried. First by the Hebrews and then by the Romans. Notice verse 55. And now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. Do you see the word sat? Do you notice it? And these are in no particular order. Though I think you have to walk somewhere before you sit somewhere, and he's walked with them to where they are. And he sits down. And the phrase there, he sat among them, means he tried to disguise who he was by making himself look like one of them. How many Christians try and disguise who they are in Christ by making themselves look like someone in the world? And talk like someone in the world. And act like someone in the world. So much so that when they speak of their relationship with God, they don't even mention the Lord Jesus. Be careful about condemning Peter much. Because in doing so, I think we can all say that at times, we have been just like him. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked and intently at him, said, This man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You also are of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. The inference here in the original language is that each time Peter is questioned, his voice goes up a notch and his denial becomes stronger. And when you stand afar off and you will not honor the Lord and you begin to speak of the Lord, eventually you end up in saying, no way, I don't know who you're talking about. That's what happens to Peter here. 
The term translated servant girl is a child. This is a little girl. This is not a grown woman. This is a Weren't you one of the disciples? He could have said, honey, yes, yeah, I am. But I'm really having a rough day. Could you kind of keep it on the down low? But Peter said, man, I am not. And then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. They spoke with an accent that, you know, we would kind of call it like a southern accent. It was kind of hickish. They didn't speak with proper grammar. Peter's over there. No way, bro. Maybe it was Californian. I don't know. Man, your head's messed up, dude. What up, bro? I'm not down with the whole scene. It was very clear that he was from Galilee. And there weren't a whole lot of Galileans in the crowd. And Peter said, man, I do not know what you're saying. And immediately while he was speaking, the rooster crowed. Peter, Peter, Peter. He walked, he sat, and he stood. All with the wrong group of people. And consequently, his witness was blown. He denies him three times. You can see them here. Woman, I know him not. Man, I am not. I'm not one of them. Exactly as Jesus had said. I want you to see the grace in Peter's life. For a lot of people, ah, man, Peter wasn't even saved. How could he do that and really name the name of the Lord? The same way you and I can do that and name the name of the Lord. Praise God for His immeasurable grace. Praise God. You've done it. I've done it. You may yet still do it again. That time of weakness... I had an interesting day yesterday. For some reason, Connie's been away with her sister and celebrating a couple of birthdays up in Northern California. I sat down and watched the entire history of World War One, followed by the entire history of World War Two. So plan on getting some World War One, World War Two history analogies here soon. But as I was watching the history of World War One, and you're looking at the Warsaw ghettos, the Polish ghettos, to where the Jews have been now, in essence, interred before they went to the concentration camps like Auschwitz and Dachau. So many of them 
denied their Jewishness. So many of them denied that they knew their own family. So many of them denied everything and said, Oh, I'm a fine German. Sikheil! Shouting out that they loved the Fuhrer. What would you do if your children were dying before your very eyes of starvation? You see, sometimes we're tested that far in our walks with the Lord. You never know when you're going to come across that trial that's so deep you can't even fathom it. Praise God for grace. I was listening to the testimonies of of these German people. who wept over what they could not stop. They believed the lie. It was heart-wrenching. How often do we get into places to where we've set something in place and now it can't be stopped and we have to ride the train to the end? And at the end of that line, we find the grace of God. Hallelujah. We can see that in Peter's tears. And immediately, yet while he spoke, the rooster crowed. This is the last thing Peter is going to see of Jesus. Peter looked, the Lord turned, and he looked at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, which he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and he wept bitterly. That's the last thing Peter saw of the face of his Savior. You were right, Lord. I would have never believed it. But I did it. And I'm sorry. Those are tears of repentance. And in tears of repentance, we find grace. The robes of mockery, surrounded by his enemies, he's beginning to be slapped around. Can you imagine the field day that Satan had with Peter? For the next three days, Peter would have been thinking on every moment of his time with Jesus. And how the Lord had loved him and brought him back and ministered to him and forgiven him. And all he had done in his Lord's final moments was deny him. Family of God, if you can't see the grace of the Lord in this passage, 
I want to encourage you to look harder. Because the Lord Jesus didn't abandon Peter like Peter abandoned Jesus. We find out from the other Gospels that Peter went so far as to cuss and swear. He used epithets. He cursed at these people. I don't know him. You, we don't know what he said, but he cursed and he swore. It was a denial of monumental proportions, but praise God that this grace is sufficient for us. Amen? You see, greater is the grace of God than our failures. Greater is the grace of God than your weaknesses. Greater is the grace of God than your outright denials. It's great grace. Magnificent grace. It's abounding grace. I want to encourage you, don't fall for the enemy's lies. You see what Satan was no doubt telling Peter was you're done. You're finished. God can never use you. What kind of disciple are you that you would do something like that? Anybody ever go through those moments of condemnation? I have. I have. I have. I have sat weeping before the Lord. Lord, why would you use me? How could I have even thought that? And on the other side of it, I find a God who's saying, Jeff, because I love you. And my grace is sufficient for you. And in my mornings are new mercies. And in my evenings are the peace of grace that you don't understand. You never will while you're on this earth. I think if we truly understood the grace of God, we'd drop over dead from the love of it all. It'd be beyond our ability to even comprehend it. Crushed by love. He's that good. But don't underestimate the enemy. Because he's going to feed you lies. He's going to say there's no hope for you. Do not believe him. And notice how Jesus is belittled bloodied and bruised and now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him can you imagine what Peter's thinking at this point in time having blindfolded him they struck him in the face and they asked him saying prophesy who is the one who struck you and many other things they blasphemously spoke against the Lord against him. So we have here the first of the three Hebrew trials. This one before Annas. Whole thing's illegal. 
you cannot mistreat someone who's accused. They obviously do. You can't humiliate them. They obviously are doing that to Jesus. Mark and John fill in the details of this phase of the trial in Mark 14 and John 18. I encourage you to read it. Caiaphas was present at this trial as well. He just wasn't the one leading it. They ganged up on him. Annas passed on the case to Caiaphas next, which would be the second trial. It's a Galilean peasant standing before the most powerful men in all of Jerusalem. And he chose not to say a word about the charges against him because they were false. You know, when you speak the truth, you don't have to defend yourself. When you speak the truth, you don't have to defend yourself. The truth speaks for itself. You can just let it go. Throw yourself on the mercy of the Lord. And say, God, I've spoken what you've asked me to speak, and I will stand. The word here for mocked actually includes derision, trickery, deception. It's as if they took sport in beating up Jesus with a bag over his head. The word blindfolded, what they would have done at that time literally was to put a gunny sack over his face. And then punch him. You want to know the sick part? Jesus knew exactly who punched him. And he didn't kill him. He didn't knock him down. He didn't ask Father God to take his very soul and cast it into the depths of the pit. But he would cry out in a few hours, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's the grace of God. These brutal men were undoubtedly numbered amongst those who later got saved. Can you imagine the powerful testimony of Jesus' silence? As these same people, it seems as though there wasn't a lot of entertainment in those days. And unfortunately, what was often deemed as entertainment, you and I would call sickening. They would go to the public executions because they were something to do. These same men that beat Jesus likely followed him to the cross. They heard the exchange between the thieves. They heard the I am's come from the cross. They heard Jesus say, It is finished. Isaiah 53 would be fulfilled that very night. Though they were condemning the Lord Jesus of blasphemy, and that would be the charge which they would take, and they would ask the Roman courts now to put Jesus to death. 
because they could not put anybody to death, though the penalty for blasphemy was death. They couldn't do it. They were under Roman rule, and so they would send them next to the Romans. We'll get to that next week. But notice how divine and how determined the Lord Jesus is here. Stands before the now the Sanhedrin, the third, the final trial, verse 66, and it says, As soon as it was day, the sun is now up. That would have been probably 6, 6.30 in the morning. The elders of the people, both the chief priests, both chief priests, both Annas and Caiaphas, that's what it's saying, the scribes, they came together and led him into their council, saying, so now they're actually in the Sanhedrin. This is the one place where the religious court can convene. This would also be illegal because he's been falsely accused of a capital crime. There are no witnesses. Nobody saw Jesus ever blaspheme. Ever. If you were the Christ, tell us. And he said to them, If I tell you, you by, by no means believe. And if also ask you, you will by no means answer me, nor let me go. So there's no point. I'm not going to dignify what you're doing with an answer, is what he's saying. It doesn't require an answer. It's untrue. And if also you ask, I know you won't let me go. But he says, hereafter the Son of Man will sit at the right hand of the power of God. And this is where they think they have him. And then they all said, are you the Son of God? Some people believe that Jesus never claimed to be divine. All four of the Gospels record this particular event as well. And so he said to them, you rightly say that I am. And then they said, what further testimony do we need? For we have heard it for ourselves from our own mouth. The Jewish religious Leadership believed Jesus' words that he declared himself the Son of God, Messiah. So much so that they said, that's enough for you to be put to death. They believed that Jesus said he was God. All the goings-on died away. Now the real trial could begin. Are you the Christ? It is as you say. Yes. So much so that when you read Mark's account of it, he actually uses the phrase Son of God and Son of Man in the same sentence. It is as you say. I am both God and man. I am the Messiah. I'm the one you've been waiting for. And they rent their garments. Tore them apart. Think on that for a minute. I'm going to ask the elders to begin to pass out the elements of communion. I'm going to have the worship team come back up. And I want to spend just a couple of minutes 
you see the Hebrew trials are now over. They're finished. The charge is blasphemy. The charge is you have said you are God. That's exactly what the Old Testament said would be of the Messiah. It's exactly the picture that Isaiah gives us. That is what the elements of communion remind us of. Jesus was and is God's only Son. Sacrificed for us. So much so that the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53 would ask very much the same question. You see, because we all have to answer it. Isaiah 53.1 says, Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's us. Who has believed our report? Who has believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and become saved? One of his kids. You see, what Isaiah was getting at is when the Messiah comes, he's going to take care of what we cannot take care of. Where he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no cobbliness. He has no vision of himself. And when we see him, there will be no beauty that we should desire him. He will be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now bear in mind that the words of Isaiah the prophet were written almost 700 years before Jesus was born. And he carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him as stricken. Can you imagine all the people looking at what went on in the courtyard of Annas as Jesus is being smote? as he's being stricken, as he's being beaten, he would then go on to the Romans and have much the same thing happen to him. And it goes on in verse 5 to say, but he was wounded for our transgressions, not for his own. Jesus just got punched in the face because of you. Because of me. Jesus was falsely accused because of you and because of me. He was bruised for our iniquities. He had his marks because of you and me, not because of himself. For the Lord laid on him the chastisement of our peace. And by his stripes, we are healed. Not him. Me. You. Us. I love verse 6. For all we, all we like sheep have gone astray. 
And everyone is turned after his own way. The Apostle Paul would write that there is none righteous, not one. That's why Jesus was tried. Because we were guilty. Not him. You and me. Ultimately, God would make his soul an offering for sin. For he bore the sin of many, it says at the end of that marvelous passage. Doesn't say all, because not all will believe. It says many, because many will believe. Sufficient for everyone but only accepted by those who believe. The price was paid. So the elements that you hold take new meaning at the cross. Many of us get it. We know it. We understand it. The stripes, the piercings, the the things that you see on this little hunk of cracker all speak to His holiness When you break this open, it's white as snow, but on the outside he was beaten and bruised and pierced. When you take the cup in your hand, that's why Jesus said, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. Father, we thank you that by the stripes of Jesus, by his bruised, pierced, crucified body dying on Calvary's cross, you reminded us of how much you love us, that you've done it all. We simply receive it. And we do remember you this morning. Lord, those cursings, that denial, the stripes, or the beating, the bruising, the crown of thorns, the humiliation, all had a purpose. It was you reminding us how much you love us. We received that love this morning. And we are grateful for it, Lord. And we remember you. We say thank you, Lord, for your broken body, for your shed blood. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.